Welcome to Food and Loathing. 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 The podcast that strives to make you salivate harder than Pavlov's dog at a bell choir recital. <laughs> your weekly dose of food porn for the ears. Your weekly reminder that those who can do and those who can't sometimes just surround themselves with those who can in an effort to make themselves look good or smart or at least competent, maybe even cool. The podcast that does more to work up your appetite than a trip to the dispensary. And then take some time to tell you what to buy if you're headed to that dispensary anyway. Your weekly chance to be a fly on the wall as chefs, restaurateurs, foodies, and journalists try to wrap their heads around what the hell is going on in one of the greatest culinary cities in America. Wow, we did we did all that and, and a lot more in the last, what, it's only been six months, right, Dale? Yeah, and you never welcomed anybody, Rich. So no, you I'll, should welcome them now. I welcome myself to this program. How's that? Hey, that's <laughs> Al Mancini. I'm Richard Johnson. That's enough of that. You know who we are. You've been listening for 30 episodes or 29, and now you get to listen to some more. And if you missed some, now we're going to go back and give you a little treat. Yeah. Uh, Otherwise known as being too damn lazy on the holidays. It's also our little uh, greatest hits episode. Yeah. I mean, look, we made it um, half a year, practically over half a year, 30 episodes, right? Yeah. It's not bad. You know, I, I have to give a shout out to Lou Hirsch, Lou, who listens every week. I he, I believe, I'm trying to remember, I think it was when we were at Olives. Lou was like, man, I listen every week and it, I, I love the podcast, but but that shit you do up at the top with um, your entry. I don't think he <laughs> likes my attempt to keep it fresh every week. And I, I don't know if anybody else does either, but it keeps me amused. So that's what matters. That's what matters. Absolutely. That little bit of creativity of juice you have to fill every week. Yeah. And it's better than trying to memorize something. Right. Okay, I just yeah. kind of go off the top of my head because, you know, that I suck when I try to memorize things. Oh. But man, Rich, I, I want to thank you for a fantastic first 30 episodes. I've had so much fun with this when I left the RJ. I mean, man, it was a crazy goal to get this up and running within two weeks. Um, you and Jason, you know, you, we, we all pulled it together. We got our first episode up in time for the Resorts World um, opening. Yeah, that was crazy. We have been going strong ever since. I think they've been getting better and better. I've been having more and more fun with them. And they really are allowing me to do what I wanted to do, which is just kind of talk food with people who love food and not give as much of a shit about the um, the content or the, the, the format, the right? Clicks. Well, we love, we want clicks. We want that. We do want clicks. Sure. We'd yeah, like some we clicks. Do. Please click and four stars and all that fun stuff that Rich usually says at the end. But <laughs> it, it's been a lot of fun. And I guess we're going to go back to, we're going to give you some, some clips from episodes that we all really enjoyed. We're going to start with, I think what it was maybe our second or third episode when we talked about Italian cuisine in Las Vegas. Rich, what do you remember? I remember me showing up to Piero's late for this recording session. I remember meeting my 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 big fanboy crush of all time now until somebody else comes along. That's Gina Marinelli. Oh man, been to oh. both her places now. Love her. We could. I wish we could talk to her almost every episode. Yeah, so that was great. And Chris Conlon hosted us, and um, it was you, me, and Jason, Gina Marinelli, and Chris Conlon. And um, we just started it off by talking a bit about the different types of Italian food and whether maybe Italian cuisine is misunderstood in Las Vegas. So here's what that sounded like. Italian cuisine, I mean, does it suffer from stereotypes? Does it suffer from people, especially in Vegas, right? In a, in a restaurant like we're in right now, where everybody's just thinking of the mafia and Sinatra and all that kind of stuff. I mean, do do people have too narrow a scope of what it means to be Italian, to cook a, a, an Italian chef? I think so. I think, you know, I think Italian cuisine has grown so much in the last decade as people have become more educated and more aware of what it can be and as products became available and, and are more available and the chefs have explored and, and gone off in different directions and start cooking different styles and different Italian from different Italian regions where originally I think Italian cuisine was thought of you know what we originally serve here at Piero's you know that red sauce and spaghetti and meatballs and chicken parm. Okay. And I want to talk to you a bit about how you've updated that, and but yet still stayed true to the roots. But Gina, explain the type of Italian that you do at La Strega, which means the witch, which I just love, um, out in Summerlin. So our cuisine is, we call it coastal inspired. So anytime I'd spent in Italy, I brought those flavors, those memories, those dishes back, but I do a little twist on them, almost what Bobby had said. You know, if I wanted to do a dish that I had in Amalfi, it wouldn't resonate here without a little twist on it. And of course, when we opened, 
people had a hard time with it. They were looking for the chicken parm. They were looking for the red sauce and everything. And you have to kind of stay true to who you are and what your vision is and kind of make sure I'm at all the tables talking about it. And it's not about being, you know, trying to educate guests. They just want to come in and have great food. But I was like, you know, Italy's 90% an island. We forget that. And just celebrating the coast and the south. And people have really started to come around a little bit more. I think they're expecting more from Italian food. I feel that that coastal cuisine, whether you want to say the Amalfi Coast or just coastal cuisine from Italy, really had um, started to have a moment maybe three or four years ago. I mean, and a lot of places in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. I should say, in Las Vegas had a moment. Um, we remember Michael LaPlaca opened up a place over in um, the Mirage, Mirage. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were a few people doing that. And then you came out, really hit it out of the park with that style of food in in the burbs mm-hmm. do you think it's easier to serve that style of coastal cuisine either in the suburbs or on the strip or does it not matter i hope it doesn't matter but for me i think in the burbs it's easier because you can have that intimate relationship with your guests you know where you're bringing in stuff that i'm only bringing in five of that day or i'm getting special fish flown in and you can connect with your guests and why we're doing it like this instead of just you know the on the strip just people are coming through you know, by the hundreds, and I'm not getting that. So I'm able to connect with them and tell that story, I think, a little bit better. When you say that you have to put your own twist on it mm-hmm. to make it resonate here, mm-hmm. can you give an example of what that might look like? I mean, for me, I think, okay, everybody here is pesto, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I think using different vegetables, a different process for that. So it's just a little bit more interesting you know, in that sense and keeping it fresh and different. And especially as a chef, you know, I don't want to just keep making basil pesto 365 days out of the year, but bringing in stuff that vegetables I can get from California that you may not get in Italy and doing those type of pestos, using different types of herbs and, you know, using cooking from, you know, most of the time, Italy, you get so many influences from Austria and Croatia and France that you can put that into your food, you know, and then Italy's so regional, they just focus on that region. Yeah, the last time I was at La Strega, you kind of blew me away with this uh, pasta with, uh, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but it was the crab voudouvan. Voudouvan, yeah. Yeah. I was like, where is this coming from? Because it's light, it's delicate, and I mean, it's, you know, kind of reminiscent of a a curry, but like a Mm -hmm. French super light broth and... uh, that was definitely something outside of the box of what I know Italian to be. And not, you know, and we, I think at this table, we all know different types of Italian, but that's really taking it to the edge somewhere else, I think. Absolutely. And it's celebrating the spice trade in Venice and recognizing Italy's history. And, you know, every t- when I spent time in Sicily, I had so much food from Egypt. And we forget that because we were just shown this small little circle of Italian food, the red sauce and the Parmesan and everything, which I absolutely love. But I just wanted to have a restaurant that celebrated kind of the unknown parts of Italy. When it comes to that red sauce kind of stuff, now we are in Piero's. This place is is known for that style. It's known for that era, you know, that, that classic from the Rat Pack through the 70s, you know, era of Las Vegas when that red sauce kind of ruled. Chris, when you came over here, was there a temptation to uh, to throw that out the window or was there tem- or was there pressure to stick to it and not be able to experiment at all? How did you balance your your creativity as a chef with what this place is known for? There there was. I definitely at first, you know, came in with the thoughts that like, okay, I'm going to reinvent this and kind of flip it upside down on its head and we're going to start over. Um, and quickly realized that we couldn't you know we the clientele some we have people that have been dining here for 30 years since they were you know five years old coming in for dinner and now they're 45 and and still coming for dinner um so quickly shift the focus to how could we improve those classic red sauce dishes and really kind of looking at um the ingredients and the the techniques and and just kind of different ways of preparing them and kind of like embracing that red sauce part of it and then you know also part of it too was as we did the first menu change and kind of approached taking some of the the classic original dishes away there was a big pushback because people were coming to piero's on thursday night for swordfish and mustard sauce and you know it was something that they had been eating for 20 years and they came every thursday night for it um so we kind of looked at how can we improve that you know the the quality of the seafood or or the preparation or the cooking technique and still offer that same dish but improve it and you know it was um it was a big challenge to fight through that in the beginning but now i feel we're in a really really good spot where we're we're honoring and respecting those red sauce dishes but doing them in an elevated way 
Cool. Could you give an example of a dish that you've elevated and how you've ele- elevated it? Yeah, I mean, I think the pasta dishes across the board, just from the the way that the pastas were being cooked, the pastas that were being used, and just sourcing, you know, high quality artisanal ingredients and 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 treating them with respect and and cooking techniques and all of that stuff. I love uh, the philosophy of both those chefs, new Italian, classic Italian. Uh, I ended up going to Piero's a few weeks later to meet the, he's not Mr. Piero. Piero was a chef that he fired way back when. Freddie Glussman, the owner of Piero since uh, the early 80s when it was a different location. I did a different podcast up in his office and I saw that he lives there. He literally lives there. He has an apartment upstairs next to his office he has it's a small studio like a hotel room and then an equal size room that's his closet that's a very (laughs) full closet i bet there's some nice suits in there too man (laughs) and there's a lot of pictures on the wall of a lot of people over a lot of decades yeah i can imagine well you know in another episode rick moon and i share freddie glussman stories but we're not going to go into those right Uh, now yeah yeah we'll have to vet those through our attorneys as well Yeah. Um, Next up, you know, one of the things I wanted to do when we started this was just have a lot of other journalists, a lot of people that used to be my competitors or people thought were my competitors or maybe that my bosses wanted to be my competitors. Have them on this show, because as far as I'm concerned, man, we're all one community here. I really am all about trying to cooperate with other people in this industry. Um, So Scott Robin of Vital Vegas, man, I mean, that was great having Scott on. And, you know, Scott doesn't need to do my podcast. Scott's got a bajillion (laughs) Followers and listeners. And I think he was a little worried because a lot of times I say that he and I do different types of journalism. I thought he thought I was going to be a dick to him, but I don't think I was much of a dick to him. Do you? Not at all. Let's hear it. Your background, first of all, you were with LasVegas.com. You wrote for Caesars Palace. Um, You wrote for the Fremont Street Experience, handled all their social media. And of course, now Vital Vegas is really where anybody who knows any, who wants to know what the hell's going on in this town and wants to hear sort of an unfiltered version of it, right? That is not necessarily always run by the powers that be, which is why people love you, man. Yeah, well, thank you. Or hate I, you. I, I, or hate. It's also uh, why they hate you. I right? am the power that bees because <laughs> I'm. Yeah. Uh, it is a an operation of one person, and uh, that's very flattering. I like to think that's true. Uh, but as as you said, it can be the way I do it is sometimes polarizing. I express op- very strong opinions. Uh, I report in a different way. So there's a lot of... Uh, the reason I think the account and the blog and all my social platforms stand out is because it's um, it, it's different and part of that is snark, part of that is just I know so many people who feed me information, uh, so hopefully people like it and the people that don't like it are free to move on. That's that's my philosophy. What was the last thing you wrote that just got heat on you, man? <laughs> uh, probably one of the biggest uh, the biggest stories in terms of traffic and buzz was the story about bed bugs. Um, and which Vegas hotels have the most complaints about bed bugs? And it was the complaints. You didn't go in and count the bed bugs yourself. In each no, hotel. but there was a study that was done. So I was reporting uh, on a study that had been done. I thought it was public information, but apparently, uh, when I say it, it turns to gold because it was out there. Uh, and but when I reported on it, it went through the roof, like hundreds of thousands of people every day, uh, for mu- multiple days, looking at this list of the hotels that had the biggest problem the study looked at all the review sites they actually did get into is this does this sound legit is this somebody disgruntled who's complaining about bed bugs but anyway that does not make me a friend of some of these hotels because and i do try to qualify it with yes they might have a problem but a problem is 45 complaints in three years like i i do try to be even-handed but the even-handed part is not the part that goes viral. Well, the, let's, the, let's be honest, Scott. We live in a town where the PR people, and a lot of them are listening right now. I probably get listened to by more PR people than anybody else early on in this podcast. Um, you know, they're used to only flattering stories. They're used to only positive stories. And, you know, I came up against a bunch of stuff when I tried to write about who was serving shark fin shark yeah. fin soup on their in their restaurants without having it on the menu because they didn't want to catch the crap and uh, you know i got i got blacklisted for a little while people wouldn't return my calls so i'm at hotels that yeah. Um, yeah oh you know pr people that just didn't want to deal with me because they knew that's the story i was you were still on. beloved for that by the way you will always have a special place in my heart because your influence on those folks the 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 institutions in las vegas who have uh, they have the power to change those things 
you speak to them in a way, uh, you're respected in a way I'm not by a lot of those folks because in their world, I'm a troublemaker. I'm a, I'm a burr under their saddle. Uh, and that shark fin story was amazing because you were the only one saying it. So I'm, I'm not saying that because I'm on your podcast. <laughs> well, I'm saying that because it, it was memorable to folks like me who think it's an absolute travesty that it happened for as long as it did. And uh, so I just wanted to say that, that that was appreciated. In all modesty, Scott has his own podcast, too, the Vital Vegas podcast, which sounds a lot better these days because I gave him some advice and I sold him some equipment to make it sound better from his house. Well, cool. Well, thank you. <laughs> so you're um, welcome, America and Vegas. Cool. Uh, you know, the next clip that we have up, I got to say, this was um, you guys doing all the heavy list lifting. You and Jason both have sports um, broadcasting backgrounds. I, or podcast, or whatever, sports casting backgrounds. I don't even really remember how many points you get for things in football. <laughs> I mean, like, I thought it was always seven and three, but then I hear about eights. I don't know. But um, anyway, so, but I, I am a great friend of Gary Lamort, the um, founder of, oh, I hope he considers it that way, that I'm a great friend, but I've known him forever. And I love his food. I love his work. And he's now um, head of Honest Hospitality, who cook for the Las Vegas Raiders. And even though I don't know anything about football, I think we all know, and even people that don't know about football know that that's got to be a hell of a job cooking for those guys. And we got in, Jason actually started this off just asking what it was like cooking for a team like that and how many people he cooks for. With the entire personnel that you're feeding, you said it's about 300 and change a day. Is that right? Um, or am I making things up? No, it depends on the when you ask me that question. <clears throat> okay. At different points in the year, it varies quite a bit, but we're serving between six and 700 meals a day there now. Amazing. You're so you're doing breakfast and lunch, breakfast, lunch and dinner. Wow. Um, what does a typical meal for an NFL player look like? And then, you know, on top of that, there are all the questions about specialty diets Are linemen's diets different than quarterbacks, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. The um, the answer is very complex because we have a range of ages. We have a range of education, socioeconomic backgrounds, size, and then how much energy they're spending all, all day. Those combined together help us understand what each person is looking for. We change the menus every two days. And um, uh, you know, at a five or seven day a week operation with that many meal periods, it's quite complex to organize it all while still hitting all those nails on the head for what it is their targets are. We do individual specialized meal prep for recovery for certain types of injuries, and then also for like weight loss or weight gain. And then we have uh, food programming that is, let's call it like our kind of like standard offerings. And that ranges from very lean and kind of like, let's say athletic focused to comfort food. Um, when you're asking people to eat in the same place that many times in a week, you're much more than just a dietitian to them. You know, you're playing the role of a grandma when they need it. And um, the hospitality component is real. Uh, they very much enjoy the um, care that we take in, in understanding them as people, not just athletes. When you talk about the specialized diets, and it depends on what's going on with that player, I'm just trying to picture what the process is like. Like, do their trainers come to you almost like filling out a prescription? Like a doctor would say, okay, so-and-so needs this. Put it into his plan. There, we work with both the strength and conditioning coaches as well as the nutrition team. And they have a director of nutrition, and they have su support staff that help them evaluate, monitor, and create relationships with the players. Um, it's tough because of the volume of them. Some sports don't have this many players on a team. You got 65, right? I mean, 53 active and then the reserves and then people get cut and signed. So you set up something for somebody, boom, they're off to Cincinnati. Yeah, it, that's very true. <laughs> and, um, also in months like August, uh, when we're in training camp, we have all the extra players. Well, I wanted to ask you about this because now you're talking about, certain days pads on and they're and like al would say they're beating the crap out of each other certain days it's just walkthroughs right day before maybe we're going carb heavy uh you're changing up the meals every two days but you must have to have that plan in place way ahead of time based on what the team is actually practicing and how hard they're going that day five weeks 
<laughs> That's yeah. What, <laughs> what about when they go home? I mean, I, I'm assuming being a football player is kind of yet to stay in condition 24 hours a day, not just while you're on the field. So are you sending them home with food? The last year during the with the intensive COVID protocols, we were. Um, <clears throat> different players are really in different stages of their careers. And they um, the people who stay and play a long time, honestly, they take nutrition extremely seriously. And they're really planning all their meals all the time. And they will do, like, we'll do meal preps for them. So they can literally, like, take a bag home and they know I'm going to eat five times a day. And these guys have ensured that I have the correct amount of protein, antioxidants, and... Um, when, apl- when applicable, carbs, to your point, because they use protein very liberally in the NFL because you always are in recovery right. of either working out or injuries or just that amount of energy. So a lot of protein, a lot of antioxidants. Um, carbs are really flexed into the diet based upon like heavy like energy days. Right. So with that, did, did you travel with the team last year for the games? The um, Our executive chef, uh, Jake Brubaker, uh, travels with the team. Last year was a little limited because they cut how many people you could have. Uh, but like, r- like right now, he's in L.A. with them. Okay. So my question is, um, and I think people would want to know, can you tell us what a typical pregame meal like might look like? Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so... In a week, they kind of cycle through, like coming down off a big event, they'll want to eat stuff that's a little more comforting. As you get closer to a game day, usually leaner and more focused, the night before, we, um, when we're at home, we throw feasts. <clears throat> and this will be, like this last weekend, it was 30 tomahawks, you know, mm. whole shellfish stations. And the idea is that it's extremely attractive to the players. It brings them all together. It brings that like culture of like sharing and eating and um, really enjoying that time together for not just the culinary components, but ensuring that they are absolutely as full as they can be of good product. Mm-hmm. Then the next morning, the pregame meal is actually a lot simpler foods. They want um, nutritional confidence. So a lot of players will eat the same thing for breakfast and lunch before a game every single time. So there's an extraordinary wide variety of relatively simple foods. Well, you say nutritional confidence, but I've got to ask, are they just superstitious? Like, do they need to have this? Does I score a touchdown when I ate this dish and so I have to eat it before every game? There is a little bit of that, but there is also um, a greater... When your body is like a performance machine... It, it's it's operating a lot faster and more intensely. So when you have issues, they're more intense and it happens faster. So when they get in a rhythm and they understand, um, like for example, one of the first things I learned was that <clears throat> when you have that much muscle mass, when you work out a lot, all the blood goes to your muscles away from your digestive system. So you can't eat, like first thing in the morning, if you're gonna have to go work out and run around, you can't eat a lot of heavy foods that are hard to digest because your body's gonna get rid of them. Mm-hmm. right? Cause there's no blood in there cycling it around because yeah. you're that much muscles right now. Normal people aren't going to experience that. So nutritional confidence really comes from when they, when they start to understand like, Hey, this is my body's rhythm and what it wants and what it makes feel good. They'll want to do that the same. So to your point, the pregame meals are wide, diverse, simple, and consistent. And, and to be a, a little embarrassing constructed. So I don't have to take a dump about halfway through the second quarter. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Rich. You know, you know, had to be said. Keeping it classy, Rich. Keeping it classy, baby. All right, write this down, Al. Mm-hmm. Six points for a touchdown. One point for a kicked point after the touchdown. Two points if you go for two on another play. And three points for a field goal. And two points for a safety when the defense tackles the team with the ball in its own end zone. There will be a test. I think I did know all of those at one point, but I think that two point after point, I don't know, man. It seems yeah. like that seems to happen a lot more now than it did when I was a kid. I don't know. Oh, they didn't. Well, the NFL didn't have it until about 10 years ago. Okay. Well, that would be why. Was, That's yes, why I get confused. It was, it was in college only. There you go. <laughs> and from cooking for, um, for football players, I then, you know, had to get it a little more into my wheelhouse. At one point, oh, yeah. we decided we would talk about what it's like to cook for rock stars and cooking for the rich and famous and cooking for movie stars. And that was a, 
great. I, I loved that episode because we got Dan Cromer, who has a long history of touring with rock bands and cooking for them. He had us in at Other Mama. And then we got um, Gino Bernardo on via Zoom, and he was out cooking for super rich people out in Idaho. And we started off, um, well, I don't know. We'll just let you listen. But we talked about what it's like to cook for the rich and famous. What's like the craziest problem you have run into as a chef on uh, one of these tours? I mean, the big stuff is, is that you have to be your own plumber, electrician and everything like that. So at like five o'clock in the morning, like I'm running around Soldier Field just trying to find some random maintenance guy mm. that's going to supply me you know, the power. And also we're dealing with uh, 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 fresh water and gray water. So you could be out at a festival these local guys aren't interested in coming by and picking up all that funky water that's coming out of your truck. And next thing you know, you have leaking going on and you have tour manager yelling at you because it's rolling towards the merchandise and you're yelling at him because he was the guy that was supposed to get it picked up in the first place. So the glamorous life on the road, man. Yeah. There's a lot of variables. Uh, I was in great shape when I was doing that stuff, but you'd be receiving deliveries and people all just be in a line uh, carrying like 40 pound cases you're just passing it like you're in the you know some like fema you know like food truck just trying to pass things that's what i wanted to ask you how do you make sure you have ingredients especially for clients who may you know stars who may be specific you know it has to be organic or something like that how do you make sure when you roll into a town you've got the the, the ingredients waiting you're doing menus that are like two weeks out and with a lot of flexibility but you're, you already have a good idea of what you're going to be making when you're in detroit and then depending on the budget of the tour, uh, there's some stuff that's literally just punching it into Cisco because, you know, like Vans Warped Tour is not a huge budget. It's a lot of just chicken breast and mashed potatoes and starch and fill people up. Um, or there's sometimes I just call it like, oh, I'll go to Chicago and be like, you know, look up the best bakery and be like, hi, I work for Taylor Swift. And you just pull out <laughs> this whole like throw your cards on the table. And next thing you know, you can get all these custom rolls made and they just want like a signed CD for their granddaughter or something like that. That makes sense. Um, you know, like you've told us about some of the non-glamorous aspects of it, but you know who can tell us about super glamorous aspects of it <laughs> is our man Gino Bernardo over there. Al, why don't you give us some background on Gino? Yeah, Gino, after, man, I met you at Nove Italiano at the Palms, a restaurant I learned to love after one whatever experience. Um, but you went on to open Herringbone in Aria, two other Herringbones in Hawaii and Cabo San Lucas. Cabo San Lucas, also where you took me for some very good tacos um, yeah, we from a little roadside that. stand. Yeah, we went to a roadside stand down, down, almost downtown. That was a good one. That was a outdoor little uh, taqueria that just slang good, you know, good tacos. But the reason that Gino took me to this taco stand is because at the time he was working at the Uber exclusive El Dorado Beach Club in Cabo San Lucas, and there was no way he was bringing my mangy ass into <laughs> that place. This is where like the super rich of the one. This is where the one percenters can't get in. Basically, like it's. I mean, you know, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about some of the ex you know, super famous people who were there, but lo lots and lots of A-list celebrities. I mean, it, 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 it was it was uh, it was pretty surreal. I mean, I did uh, Joe Buck's wedding. I did Adam Levine's wedding down there. Um, cooked for Randy and Cindy Gerber all the time um, in their homes um, at the club. But um, there there was just so different compared to now where I'm at in Summerlin at the summit there like. And even here in Gaza, like 99's here. Uh, I haven't seen the Kardashians, but they're here. Bieber's here. Um, uh, Julia Rancic's And that's where you are here. right now? Where, where are you right now? Because you do work at the I'm Summit at, Club in, in Vegas. Idaho, but North, Northern Idaho called uh, uh, Gaza Ranch. It's in a town called Coeur d'Alene. Beautiful, right on the lake. And this is like summer summer paradise. Uh, they have a boat. They play golf. Um, but this is where like they let go. This is their... Uh, this is their fun time, so it's it's pretty much, a, it's pretty much a big party up here. So Gaza Ranch, not Gaza Strip, not that would Gaza be a different, <laughs> different experience altogether. And somehow I don't yeah. see the Kardashians ending up at the Gaza Strip. We so, could only hope. But <laughs> so, are you cooking for full communities up there or individual celebrities? How's so, you, so it's a private residential uh, community. So basically, you have to buy land and you become, a, and then you're a member. Um, and we have in, in at Gaza. There's four different restaurants, um, state of state of the art um, golf facility. Right on the lake, everybody has a boat. Um, they have their homes where they live on the lake. And um, I'm either in, in one of the restaurants part time, and then I cook for um, 
I'm up here this summer cooking for the owner, Michael Melman. So he was the third partner of Casamigos with George Clooney and Randy Gerber. So when these guys throw parties and you're cooking in their homes, man, these got to be some crazy parties. I know you can't say put the name with the party, but like, man, what's some of the most extravagant stuff you've done at any of these places, whether it be El Dorado or the Summit Club or out in Idaho, which who knew that was party? I mean, so far this summer, it's been like just, you know, it, they, the parties start out with like 10 people and then they grow, grow, grow. And um, they're just here. Here just seems they're a lot more kicked back, relaxed, um, enjoying each other's time, um, especially after COVID. You know, there's a lot of members up here. Uh, Summit's very chill. Um, you know, you, you know, just going to um, either I might one night go to Pacioret, uh, Max Pacioretty's house, uh, go cook for him and the family. Or, you know, a bunch of you know members are up in the clubhouse. Um, El Dorado was was the ultimate party party place. Um, uh, one cool night I was in uh, Jimmy Burrow's house, and that's the guy that produced um, Cheers and Friends. And George Strait came over for dinner. We cooked. And then like an hour later, George Strait just picks up the guitar and plays like an hour you know, solo set of just jamming and everything like that. Um, so things like that were just very common at El Dorado. Gazer's just been cool, you know, like I see, uh, you know, Wayne Gretzky, 99 a lot. I cook for him either at his house or um, at Melman's house. He's really cool, laid back. Julia Rance again, her husband, or, or chill. Randy Gerber and Cindy Crawford have been up there. But they've just been like this summer just seems like everybody is just, you know, relieved of, of being able to, you know, hang out and uh with each other's company you know you you talked about like george Strait coming by and just jamming out and i think that's great that you're telling the music stories damn backstage on a tour do you hear a lot of music or are they just so tired of playing on stage that like no way they're not gonna jam you know, randomly get something maybe like an after party but like it, it gets super monotonous and i hate you know it's it's It'd be different cities and all this stuff and it'll be like exactly when you're putting out usually like the second round of like the salad bar you hear like the same song at the same time and you catch yourself you're like you were my biggest <laughs> you know and you know i had this buddy um work for disturb and he would just be like mashing mashed potatoes and be like Wah! like constantly like dude just shut up shut see up. that's a point for, for gino and myself and actually you al because we're from jersey and springsteen never repeats a set list but that's beside the point al hates it wouldn't be a boss. show if jason didn't mention new jersey jason <laughs> yeah, jersey the man. see gino's got that pride jason mentions new my, jersey my, more I, when, but I, when al, I was a kid I used to sneak into the Stone Pony because my father had a tattoo shop in Asbury Park, um, and he used to take me there as a young kid. So I used to see Bruce really, really young. I'm talking like uh, 84, 85, you know. Well, look then. at that, Al. Look, look at, that. at that. All I'm saying is Jason names drop <laughs> mentions New Jersey more than Chris Christie if he was writing the liner notes <laughs> for his Springsteen Greatest Hits album. Wait, wait a second. Let's focus on what's important here. Uh, me being right again, but uh, you guys were talking. You kind of touched on it, Gino and Dan. You're here too and cooking for a lot. What about some crazy Vegas stories with some of the stuff you guys have done? Uh, Vegas? So, oh, you go, Dan, brother. And I was going to say, Gino, at the Palms. I mean, you were at the Palms at Nove Italiano during the George Malouf heyday when, days, like, yeah. when uh, that, that was like everybody was, was up there. Back then, it was just it was crazy. Back then, I mean, just the the people walking in, the people walking out, um, just the celebrities, just the it, back. You know, the Palms that was the era. I mean, Nine Steakhouse, Nove, Moon, the Playboy Club. I mean, the the, the gambling and the, the sex and the sex that you saw and <laughs> just craziness. It, it was a, it was the best time of, of my my life in Vegas. It, it was as funny. far as seeing. It was uh, it was very unique what George uh, made happen at that at that era of Las Vegas. I was at a party this past weekend with a lot of former Hard Rock employees, and all of them had worked there during the um, the Peter Morton days, and they were comparing stories on the largest piles of cocaine that they had ever seen at the Hard Rock, <laughs> like sugar bowls full of cocaine. So just for the hell of it, largest pile of cocaine you guys have seen during your job? Anybody? Anybody want to tackle that one? Rich is raising Man. his hand. <laughs> Ooh, I think the most, well, the nice thing about doing the concert stuff, which I miss, is that they were contract jobs. Most coke, I mean. But vacationing in real Panama world in between speed, jobs. You know, I don't remember who was in there, but the real world speed, I mean, there, there was coke on every table, you know. 
Awesome. Every girl, you know, doing bumps off girls' asses, you know. Oh, God. Love rock and roll. I do love rock and roll. <laughs> okay. So in the last segment, Rich talked about players pooping. In this segment, I talked <laughs> about giant piles of cocaine. Anybody that thought we were going to keep it classy with this podcast <sighs> should know that that's not happening. This is the kind of thing I signed on for, to go into a whole other world, just like you with sports, me with the celebrities, and uh, and the edibles as well. And uh, let's talk about that after we sell a couple of things. This is Food and Loathing. Hey, I finally got to say that word. That sounds good. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And welcome back to our year-end roundup of the first 30 episodes, or the roundup of the first 29, in episode 30 of Food and Loathing. We're having a lot of fun going back, going over some of our favorite segments. Um, You know, one of the things that I really wanted to do when I started this podcast was cover edibles, THC edibles, um, CBD edibles, anything made from cannabis. And it wasn't really because I'm a huge user of those. They were never my drug of choice, even in my days when I had a lot of drugs of choice. But I, I, I always resented the fact that I wasn't allowed to write about it at other publications. I wasn't allowed to treat them with the same respect that we treat alcohol when in food and beverage coverage. And I didn't see anybody else doing it. I didn't see anybody else talking about edibles and whether they just tasted good. So if you're a regular listener, you know that every week we have done a little bit of an edible review, just talking about what they taste like, um, what the doses are, things like that, how, how well they store, how well they keep, um, things like that. But prior to getting into that, I really feel that we needed to introduce people who may be curious about THC and CBD edibles into the vernacular, the language, so they weren't intimidated. So we got a couple of fantastic experts, um, Beth Schwartz from Elevate Nevada Magazine, um, which unfortunately recently folded. They were having problems uh, paying for their paper with the price of paper in the supply chain. At least that's what I heard. Um, So that was sad, but they were still going strong. And also one of my favorite vegan chefs, um, Stacy Dugan, who also makes a line of, of cannabis edibles. We sat there in a dispensary and we talked about the basic vocabulary for those people who may, whether it's for medical or for social or for personal reasons, want to experiment with these things. We did get rich to experiment with <laughs> them did. after that. Um, but here are your basics. Here's your primer in um, what you need to know about cannabis edibles. For this big first venture into <laughs> edibles, um, let's, let's hit the basics for people who may not be familiar with them at all. First of all, the law, okay? Let's, let's get it straight. Um, cannabis is legal in the state of Nevada. Correct. It is not legal federally. Correct. So Correct. you're going to want to confine what you do to within the state. You don't want to get on an airplane. You don't want to nope. cross state D- lines. Don't travel with it, <laughs> folks. Even if you're going to Colorado? Even if you're going to Colorado, once, I wouldn't risk it. I wouldn't either. I mean, if you're lines, going to Colorado, just get it in Colorado. Right. That's <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, once you cross state lines, you're giving the feds a reason. To, trafficking. To, yeah, yeah. Basically, they interstate commerce and trafficking and all that fun stuff. So keep it in state. Um, the other thing, you know, I, I want to talk to people about how easy it is to come into one of these dispensaries. I mean, I just signed up as a customer here. By the way, we are at the Source yes. Cannabis Dispensary. We're on the corner of Rainbow and Sahara. This is one of three of their local spaces. Um, and I know they have one up in Reno as well. Um, so th- that's where we are right now. I've never shopped at the source before, so I came in, just signed myself up as a customer. Real simple. You show them your driver's license. You give them your phone number. You're already enrolled in their frequent buyers program, and you get discounts and all that kind of fun stuff. So um, d- is there anything else people need to know about the first time they walk into a legal dispensary? You might want to do a little bit of research just because, I mean, you might want to try to figure out if you want a beverage, if you want an edible, if you want a pre-roll, which is a joint. 
for those from, you know, yes. <laughs> many decades ago, right. you know, a flower or whatever it is you want to, type of experience you want to have. Although these bud tenders in these dispensaries are so amazingly educated that they will gladly walk you through the whole process. And that's what's amazing about the Nevada dispensaries is that level of education. I've been to dispensaries in other states and it's not at all like that. So we're extremely lucky how well educated they are. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, and you mentioned bud tenders, and I love that that's the name, <laughs> the bud tender, like a bartender, but they tend you your buds. Uh, the other vocabulary words you're going to need to know, and this is really where it comes down to, do you want to get high, do you want to get healthy, what do you want to get? Um, the main words that I pulled out are THC, CBD, CBN, terpenes. These are the things that are going to confuse people, right? So Correct. off the bat, who wants to start explaining those? I, right now, I'm only experimenting with THC, um, but THC is the active part of the plant that it gives you that elevated feeling. And so um, that's what you, when people are smoking or whatever, that's what gives you that, that high, so to speak. I don't like to say high. I like to say elevation. <laughs> <laughs> Elevate, elevation. See mm. how I threw that in there? Nice plug. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, the CBD, CBD is the uh, portion of the plant that is really great. I mean, the, the entire plant is good for healing, but it doesn't necessarily give you that head high. It's more of the, uh, the body relaxant. So the entire plant is medicinal. So whatever... You know, whatever acronyms you choose to consume, you're going to get the medical benefits, you know. But CBD and also CBNs, I believe, um, that's if if you have a grandmother who doesn't want to get high but needs the health benefits or if you have a child who needs the health benefits and you don't want to get them high like that, the the CBD, there's no risk anybody's going to get wasted on CBD. They're non-psychoactive. Yes. (laughs) That's the word. Yes. 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 Exactly. (laughs) Cool. Um, So what I find weird, though, is in the edible space, it can be a little harder to find CBDs than it is to find THC. Now, I guess a lot more people just want to get high, but it all, than, than who want to get healthy, maybe, and especially in Las Vegas. But that seems a little strange. Have you guys noticed that, that we are maybe a little lacking? I know, you know, there are brands of gummies that I buy, like Wild, which has purely CBD. So sure. you can buy uh, certain flavors of that, and you're not going to get any psychoactive properties. But those are a little rare, right? Right. Well, the drinks, there's, there's a lot of CBD drinks, actually, mm-hmm. and coffee. Um, I call myself a CBD junkie because I my uh, all my f- facial products, all my beauty products are CBD. You know, my coffee, my water. I ingest a heck of a lot of CBD, mm-hmm. and I love it. And so I, I seem to find a lot of it, but I'm also not taking it medicinally. I'm just taking it, you know, for beauty and whatnot, wellness. But in the edible sphere, I guess so you're saying the drinkables. The, the drink, there's a lot in the drinks. Okay, but you're, you're right, and and the can so and there's a lot of CBD stores because there's different regulations for CBD, so it's more like accessible. When you go into a dispensary, you may not find as many CBD edibles because when people go to dispensaries, they're usually not looking for that. They can get that from you know another CBD store that's just a standalone. So, and if it's hemp CBD, that's federally legal. Absolutely. So that puts a different twist on it. Okay. You can order that anywhere from any place because it's federally legal because of the hemp bill. The farm bill in 2018 passed hemp and made it legal. Okay. Okay. So that. But not cannabis CBD. See, that's just, (laughs) see, it's. It's just crazy. It's very clear right. as mud. But I am working, I'm working on, because I have um, kale, cannabis kale chips that I make, and that's THC. But when I was trying to get it and talking to different dispensaries, they were like, well, we love the idea, but we can't do THC. They'd be like, why don't you infuse them with CBD? And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm, I am working on a line of CBD products as well, because like you said, they need more in dispensaries. And they're looking for, you know, innovative, unique things. Yeah, after that episode, I did uh, buy about three different things, and I tried them. First time I'd really had, uh, first time I'd ever had anything that wasn't uh, a marijuana cigarette, and the last time I had one of those was in college some 40 years ago. <laughs> and uh, and you talk about experiment, and yeah, I experimented, and the result of the experiment is they're not for me. But I know that now, so that's you know, education is good. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm never trying to talk anybody into doing anything that they're not already going to do. I just want to make sure it tastes good when they do it, if they're doing it already. Indeed. We're going to end this with two of what I consider our greatest triumphs, and that is going off and seeing Jamie Tran right after, well, it's been a while after 
Top Chef Portland aired. Being a Portland guy, I watched every episode of that. I've always watched Top Chef. My wife and I have watched that since day one. It's sort of one of the only competition shows that I'm still into. She has watched every episode of Survivor. We gave up on Hell's Kitchen. We gave up on on uh, Great Race and, and never got into Bachelors or Bachelorettes or you know, 90 day fuck fest or whatever these things are called. Well, there's um, a 90 day fuck fest um, competition. <laughs> no, well, well, I might go I'd for that one. That. Okay. <laughs> Just, you know, to take notes and remember when, because I'm old. I'm very, very old. But watching Jamie Tran get almost all the way through Top Chef Portland and seeing all those places, like when they went crabbing. I've literally been crabbing in the Halem Bay on the Oregon coast, which is where they went. And a couple of other places I've been to, they spent a lot of their time at Cannon Beach when they weren't in Portland on the coast. And that was really fun. And then to finally get to meet someone who got that far and see what a delight she is was was great for me. Well, I have to ask, you know, earlier today, just a short a short while ago, you told me that Gina Marinelli was your number one fanboy experience of this. But yeah. I thought Jamie was. Okay, so, it's a tie. It's a okay. tie. And actually, well, uh, after we did the show with with Gina, she was on a competition show and that and she killed it on that one. I can't remember a thing about it anymore other than Robert Irvine hosted it. Oh, they had to cook various cuisines of the world on no notice with a big projection of whatever part of the world they were cooking behind them. And okay. yeah, that's that's all I know. Anyway, I didn't see that one. But Jamie back was to wonderful. Jamie Tran. We had a lot of fun at the Black <laughs> Sheep, and we talked a bit about why she went on the show. This segment doesn't get into me yelling at her for her great big gesture. We, you'll have to listen to the whole episode <laughs> for that. Um, but this is where we were keeping it nice. Jamie Tran, owner of one of my absolute favorite off-strip restaurants in Las Vegas, one of my absolute favorite restaurants in Las Vegas, to be completely <laughs> honest, the Black Sheep. And spoiler alert, she was also one one of the final five contestants um, on Top Chef Portland, where she accomplished the impossible, which is getting me to watch that show again oh. after 17 seasons. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying so hard not to be a fanboy, and I've already <laughs> failed miserably in the time I was setting up here being a Portlander and uh, watching every second of that as well. Man, I, ha I have always loved Top Chef, but, you know, it got a little old. The formula got a little old for me. I like yeah. Tom. I respect those guys a lot. But then I'm like, Jamie Tran's on it. Oh, my God, I've got to watch this again. How and Jamie, you did not disappoint me, man. You everything I could have wanted from a show, including me screaming at you and yelling at you and getting mad at you. So, um, it happens. Uh, well, thanks so much for having me. We're in the Black Sheep right now, which, as I said, one of my favorite restaurants. If people have not um, been over here, how do you describe the cuisine at Black Sheep? Um, I describe it basically uh, Vietnamese influence with French technique, American ingredients. And I always say it's me on a plate because I don't know how to describe it. It's just... Something I wanted to do, and I wanted to be creative and just express my experience to the industry, my experience growing up, and the food I ate, and food I, I traveled, and stuff like that. And it's just me just missing home, and I decided to create something that I can share with other people. Wow. Well, I've, I've loved this restaurant. I actually came over here and kind of knocked on the door before you were even open. I didn't know that you were going to be attached to this restaurant. I was getting a sandwich. Like, I right? <laughs> I remember. Tony Baloney. Right? Um, so I'm like, what the hell is this place? And I came down. I'm like, oh, my God, this is going to be Jamie Tran's restaurant. This is going to be cool. And you're in a, a hot little section of Las Vegas right now. You're on Warm Springs in Durango. I just drove by the site where they're going to be putting up the new Durango station. They revealed photos of that today by the way or renderings i should say it's cool <laughs> looks real cool and um they're putting on commons in over there yeah. giraffe kings are going to have headquarters so you you were kind of a um a pioneer in launching this little neighborhood what was this neighborhood like when you came over here um not that much i was actually a little a hendo girl i lived in henderson so i went out in this area and i was like oh okay let's, let's figure this out um and, <laughs> um my uh partner john he was all like this is the area and then we're like cool and we just looked around and then i was like just make it happen and we did there's <laughs> anything here that i see here now um, yeah, they're all like, uh, well, the ice skinny cream, fats was here, right? Skinny fat was here. And then that, uh, the ice, that dessert spot kept on changing. I don't know. Now it's some boba spot that kept on changing them. Tony Bologna went away. Which they never really called Tony Bologna's. I, I just called it. They had the name on their, on their pizza oven, right? I yeah, think, so. that's what I call it. <laughs> I used to go there because they made a mean, um, a, a roast pork sandwich, Philadelphia style. So I used to go there all the time for that. I had that too with the rapini in there. Yeah. yeah. The but they don't have that anymore. 
anymore. If you want to put that on your menu, it's a surprise for me one day. That would be great. I call it Al Tony Baloney sandwich. <laughs> yeah, Al's Tony Baloney. Everybody says I'm full of baloney. Oh, Al Me too. Well, you know, I've already posted on Facebook that I might be speaking to you today. People have a lot of questions. Everybody loves you. You're America's sweetheart after Top Chef. <laughs> Um, no, I'm sweet and sour. <laughs> I want to go back to the beginning and I want to ask you, um, how'd you end up on Top Chef? Did you submit some sort of audition tapes? Did they come to you? No, they came to me like uh, this is during the pandemic and we were shut down and like um, uh, they, they reached out to me and I was like, oh, I don't know because I don't do competitions and I got I do have like a like I guess you have I don't know about stage fright, but it's, uh, I have bad anxiety when it comes to competition, so I don't do them. Um, so I was like, no, no, thank you. But then they were talking to me. I was like, well, okay, I'll listen to you out because it's the pandemic. We're closed down. Let me see what they have to say. And then um, uh, my executive at the time said, just try it out, chef. And then he said, oh, you can do this. And he's always been pushing me to do things like competition-wise. He said, you can do it. And um, uh, my best friend, she told me, like, just do it. And then so... I talked to them and then I was like, well, it doesn't hurt to see what the process is. So we continued with the process and I didn't think I was going to make it to tell you the truth. I just, I just went with the process and then, um, then I was on it and I was like, Oh, <laughs> I, uh, I always wonder why people do shows like that because I mean, th there are a couple of main motivating factors. Some people are attention whores. They just want to be on TV. They want to be Kardashians or something. <laughs> I know you well enough to know yeah, that's no. not you. Some people are looking for investors. They're hoping it'll help get a restaurant, launch their first restaurant. Um, you know, other people want the prize money. Yeah. Um, so you tell me, you keep shaking your head. You're shaking your head. No, 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 no. no. So what drew you to be on the show or is it, was, were you just I bored? out of your mind with COVID no, and you had to get out of the house. I honestly wanted to conquer some of my, like, I have like, a, again, like I have bad anxiety. So for myself, just doing that and just, I guess it was more self uh, improvement. I don't know how to say it. I, I didn't think I was going to win. The, I'm not going to, I'm being honest. I didn't think I was going to win it. Um, I knew I was going to freeze up a lot and I'm going to do what I always do. Cause when I get like, I get the shakes, I go, and I make weird shit. <laughs> I forget things and I'm like, oh God. Um, so I did it for, see if, cause I, again, don't do competition. Even when we're, they do the back house bra, I always say, you know, too, cause I get nervous cause I don't want to do that stuff cause competition is not me. So, um, that's what, uh, I don't know. I think it's for myself and just also to show my stuff. If I'm doing something really uncomfortable, then they can do it as well. Mm -hmm. So that was probably my main motivator factor was me and just showing my staff that they can actually push themselves. Cause I opened this restaurant wanting, before I opened this restaurant, I wanted, again, I think I, I just, I told you this before I wanted to, um, just to like show people who are doubted that they can have opportunities. And I was always doubted in my life so I did something so for myself this is another thing to show another example of pushing people I guess and myself okay. as you got deeper in the show did your attitude about it and your participation uh, change did you get a little more motiva motivated I think after being eliminated on the fifth episode I was I had I was still I, I was it was having I was having a hard time um, I guess adjusting to being in the competition and just trying to make it each day and I was just like day by day I was like I don't know if I'm gonna make it I just keep and I got really bad nerves but once I was eliminated I was like like a lot of weight got out of my shoulder then last year scheduling happened and I went back in and I think it's I think my confidence changed and I was like what I was like what's the worst that happened you get eliminated and you get to rest you get to watch tv and get a bottle of booze why not okay <laughs> <laughs> And from Jamie Tran to our final segment of our year ender, and this one, Rich, I know you had a lot of fun. This is yeah. the um, this is the day that made you glad that we were not on a network and you didn't have to edit oh, out golly, all yeah. the fucks, right? Well, um, <laughs> well, our first episode had a lot of James trees in it, and uh, the subsequent episode that we recorded right on Main Street in the middle of Vegas Unstripped on a Saturday night on a cool Saturday night in downtown Las Vegas with James and a zillion other people who came by. But James was, 
He always is the star when he shows up. He is the mayor of Main Street, even if his place really isn't on Main Street. Yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. And that was one of two times during this podcast that we've gone with a double episode that we've just done a leftovers. The first being the Pizza Expo, where we just had so much great shit yeah. that we recorded um, down at um, Good Pie. And in this case, you know, we were doing a lot of um, a lot of streaming live from Vegas Unstripped. I think Vegas Unstripped is definitely right now the most important food festival las vegas has so yeah. we just wanted to go live be there be amongst the people and we just kept it rolling kept it rolling and we decided that we would drop leftovers from that one and that included a nice big fat chunk of james trees where he cursed a lot where he probably offended a lot of people where he called out a famous chef but um it also had this segment where he talked about how vegas unstripped was founded the idea for unstripped basically came from um I've, I came from L.A., right? I was in L.A. for 10 years, and I did every L.A. food and wine. I did Pebble Beach. I did all these events, all these amazing, great things with all these great chefs. And then I get to Vegas, and someone from Uncorked sent me an email inviting me to be one of the chefs at Uncorked. As long as I paid the $3,500 fee for my table fee, and then I had to pay for 5,000 pieces of food, and then I had to pay for the labor to create that. And then I had to go there and execute it. And only then would I get the honor of going to Uncorked. And, and having been to Pebble Beach for the... and wine, I was like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> right? I was like, for the same amount of money that you're asking me, I could do my own festival. <laughs> and fuck I said you. that to Eric. Yeah. And Eric's like, well, should we? And I was like, fuck it, let's go. do it. And that was it. Yeah. That's the whole philosophy. Yeah. It's like, like, let's be honest. We just have ideas yeah. and we're just like, yeah, why not? Yeah. This is like, like, one, like this is one of those foolhardy, crazy ideas. And look yes. what like, look what these guys yeah, have turned it's into. It's turned into, man. Yeah. It's turned into the premier food event in Las Vegas. You know, because here's what happened. We did it. We took 700 people away from Uncorked. Well, 700 people was their entire profit margin. Because <laughs> they were flying in fucking Guy Savoie and Bobby Flay and all these guys to have their chefs who didn't want to be there cook food that they didn't want to cook at their booth that was all set up and beautiful and architect and designed by engineering and tens of thousands of dollars per restaurant for each one of these things so that way they could put out soulless food that's what uncorked ended up being and why would i want to associate myself with that why would i pay extra money to be a part of that so what we did is we said all right here's the rules number one the chef has to be there. Mm -hmm. If you're here, yeah. the chefs are here. That is rule number one about Unstripped. Number two, no fucking sliders. <laughs> no sliders Thank you. in general. The, the, it's a theory is that, you know, for years and years and years, just the hack restaurants would just do sliders. Everyone did a slider, 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 slider. How many fucking sliders, Al, did you eat? Thousands. Uh, Thousands. I have eaten many a slider. <laughs> and every time you're like, many oh. a poolside slider. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the Las right? Vegas media, um, food media logo oh. from, I'd say from maybe, you know, uh, 2009 through 2019 should have just been a slider by the pool. Yes. Right? That's what our press passes <laughs> would look like. Just give us a laminated slider by a yes. pool pass and we could get into every event. Right. right? Wow. And so our rule was you can't cook something that stupid. If you do it, you're not allowed back. <laughs> so the first year we did three dishes, right? Because we also didn't know. But like Ralph did nine dishes. Brian no, did four what? dishes. Oh yeah, oh, seriously, yeah. Yeah, it was a whole thing. <laughs> oh yeah, you guys, it was like, oh, it my was gosh. Watching, like watching a share concert yeah. with the costume <laughs> yes. changes. Man. Yes, I Dude. mean it was just like, oh, oh. where's James going? Oh, he's he's yeah. changing out his dishes. Yeah. Like, you didn't get it. We changed our it. setup. That was your seven yeah. minutes that you had yeah. to get that did. That's it. Yeah. So we were just we were constantly <laughs> evolving and changing things and doing all that. And we did like so basically the first year we did a tasting menu. Come back, go around, come back in, we'll have a different dish. Come back around, do it, we'll do a different dish. Then the next year, we were like, okay, so we did little dishes. So now this year, the last time we did it, it was big dishes. So I uh, grabbed a couple of, I had a couple of iron crosses, made it a welder around the corner, grabbed a, a, like a little swing set rack from Justin Kingsley Hall, <laughs> built a fire in the back, and roasted two lambs over the fire in the back of Esther's <laughs> while I sat in a chair and drank beer all day. <laughs> and then we rolled we rolled uh, pita and we made fresh pita to order 
in Vinny's wood-fired oven. I swear I thought he said pita. Pita, I yeah. thought like the, the people for the ethical yeah. treatment of Alabama. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. yes. I thought he rolled them. Like, yes. they, they were yes. mad that he was cooking them. the um, <laughs> I rolled cooking them. the lamb. I rolled he them. rolled so those rolled bastards. Them. Yeah. We rolled yeah. them. No big deal. And then, and then no. we did, yeah. So, and then we this year we did, like, to, to screw off with pita people, <laughs> we did foie gras raviolis. <laughs> yeah. Right? And I did foie gras raviolis, but to, this year was really important because as Steve, who's been with me for three years, has really become the center focus and the chef of Esther's, I wanted him to do a dish too. So he decided to do porchetta de testa in a banchan style and do a banchan taco. Oh, that thing, yeah. Right? Super good, right? Yeah. And he's a great chef and a great human being, and he's just been a great part of our team. And as he's evolved, I want him to be recognized as being the chef of Esther's. Like, I'm not the chef of Esther's. He is, right? I'm not the chef of Veda's. Jackson is. I'm not the chef of Alcelito. Steve Young is. Right? And all of those guys have amazing teams and amazing sous chefs. And I'm there to guide and help be of service to them. Like, yeah. the, the one thing that Steve wanted from me is like, dude, did you get my plates? I'm like, yeah, I got your <laughs> plates, all right? Fine. I don't know if your dish is, but fine, I got your plates, right? <laughs> so I end up, I'll end up being the logistics guy and I'll end up being that guy to make sure that they have the support they need in order to create something that's awesome for this event. And I love the fact that we had all these crazy lines and everyone's happy to have us. And I mean, I thought the caviar donuts that you did were out of control. I thought the freaking lamb tartare oh. was super delicious. The arancini with the beef cheek that Steve did oh, was yeah. freaking amazing. Very special. Oh. Yeah. yeah. I like, and the, here's my thing is like, for me, I do, I have a rule. I don't do dishes at events that are on my menu. Right, so starting and next. And sliders. Yeah, yeah. There's two rules. <laughs> no, 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 that's that's my that's my rule for all events. Is I don't right. do shit that I could do in the restaurant, or else I would just do it there. Yeah. Like so. And yeah. why would I really want to eat it outside if it's yeah. the same? I mean, like there are a couple chefs that I'll accept it from, and uh, okay, you're, I'm sure you're gonna roll your eyes, but if I if Guy Savoie wants to do his truffle artichoke soup outside by a pool and pour that for me, yeah. I'm not gonna bitch. I've had that. Yeah. I've had that yeah. soup. 18 times in my life, and You're I'm gonna have it every it fucking time. Hey, he man. Makes it. Hey, all right, he can so, make it by yeah. a pool, he can make it on yeah. a train. With the I will eat it on a train. I will eat locks. it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make it darker too. Yeah. But generally yeah. speaking, I agree. But, with you. Right. But here's the thing is like, is the artichoke soup better when Nick does it, or is the artichoke soup better when Guy Savoie does it? I'll bet you the freaking artichoke soup is better when Guy Savoie does it. Yeah. That's that's what Unstripped is about. Right. It's like the chefs who are here, like uh, the foie gras patty melt that Johnny did. That can only be executed by Johnny. Right. That's it. It's his dish. It's his thing, right? Johnny Church we're talking about, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, if you go down here and you see this murderer's row of amazing <laughs> chefs, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, yeah. come on. Like, like, this is awesome. Like, this is the funnest event, and we do it every year, and we surround ourselves with great human beings. And then next year, we invite more and more people. Cool. You know, and like I want to invite, you know, Dan Coughlin from 8 East. I want to invite him. I want to invite Leticia. I think what she's doing over here at um, at Letty's uh, Cochina and Tuckeria over here on Main Street. I think that's really great. You know, we would love to. What you do you know, think about having Dan Daniel here from Carver? Dude, the, I, I, I actually. So, okay, so, chef here. All right. So here's the move. Right. So here's what <laughs> we had to do to get Daniel. Because Daniel's like, oh, dude, I really want to do <laughs> it. Daniel but they're also talk. having an event and they need me to do it here. And I got to do an app. And it's over at the Lou Ruvo Center and blah, blah, blah. Same day. Right. Mm. I was like, dude, they're going to keep you in the back of the Lou Ruvo Center. They're not going to show you off. You're not going to get any press about it. I was like, so here's the thing is that I have the tie with that group over at Mott's Bar. So a perfect bite, Oliver Wharton and Pierre Carrillo, who are my friends there. And then also Bart Mahoney. I'm like, yo, if you really want to get some like vibes for your restaurant, you know, like, why don't you have him come do our event? Right. You know, have him here cooking here. Send a sous chef to go put out his food over there. And the deal is that's definitely sending a message that they want locals to come into yeah. that restaurant, right? A hundred percent. By being here, huh. yeah. you're making a statement yeah. that you're hoping that locals will come to yeah. your casino restaurant. A hundred percent. Because you're yeah. not doing this to try to get the people that are flying in. I mean, no. and by the way, I've seen some friends here who are out of town people yeah. that did fly in for this, but generally yeah. speaking, you're, you're reaching My, my great point of pride being a beginner in all this is at the opening of Resorts World when I was over there at Carver taking yeah. pictures and showing you what I thought was the, the big piece of meat. Yeah, yeah. And that's when you saw Daniel in my yeah. picture and went, yeah. oh shit, he's going over to Resorts World. I had no idea. Like, yeah. you, you broke well, the news, man. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but the cool thing is, is like, like we were able to get him over here, but the rule is he had to be here. Yeah. Because if it was a sous chef, he couldn't do this. If that doesn't sell a ton of tickets for next year's Vegas Unstripped, 
you need to just leave town right now. Yeah, I, I can't. I'm already <laughs> salivating over next year's Vegas Unstripped. And I'm salivating over a lot of next year's episodes. We've got a lot in store next year. I've got a lot on the plate. Um, As soon as when we come back next year, I'm going to start bringing you guys all up to date on what I've been working on other than this podcast, um, a little project called Neon Feast. It's going to be, I think it's going to change the way you pick a restaurant in Las Vegas. So we're going to be rolling out those details throughout the month of January in advance of an early, early February launch of that. Rich, I know you've got all sorts of things going on, but you're going to keep being here with me, right? Oh, yeah. Between uh, trips to Olive Garden and IHOP, I'll come on by. You know, we did no. not do a greatest hits of your, um, of your yeah. junk food reviews. I'm sorry. We should. Uh, it's one, okay. We, we have to draw the line somewhere. But thank you again for letting me come and play along. This has been great. I've learned a lot. I have met some interesting people, wonderful people, and I hope to meet a whole lot more in 2022. I think it's going to be a great year for this podcast, for Las Vegas dining, and for um, you and I having fun together. And do you want to tell people to stay hungry now? Uh, no, I'll people, I'll tell people to uh, find us, but well, if you found this, you found the podcast. So fuck all that stuff about going to a podcast. You know where to find a podcast. You, you found it, but, uh, f- send us feedback at the neon mohawk.com. That's where you find our Instagram or, uh, Facebook or, uh, twit face and all those uh, other things you need to go to, or just send us something direct info at food and loathing.vegas. And no, I, I can't take your line away from you. I'm Al Mancini with Rich Johnson and with a lot of great people who have joined us over this past 29 episodes. A lot of people I need to thank. Everyone from Jason Harris, Rick Moonen, lots of co-hosts, lots of guests, a billion people. Couldn't have done it without all of you. Las Vegas, stay hungry. Stay hungry.